Hey everybody, this is Daniel here with, uh, with Propelio. I'm here with Greg Dickerson, and we're going to be talking about some key things, man. He was on R.J. Bates' podcast, The Titanium Vault, last week. They just released that. This guy has done over $200 million in real estate and has a wealth of knowledge that we're going to be sharing with you today. If you'd like to learn more about how he got into that $200 million, watch Titanium Vault's podcast with R.J. Bates. But today, we're going to hit three key questions that I think all y'all want to know. What does it look like for a new real estate investor, and what should a new real estate investor be doing to scale up their business. Question number two that we're going to try and hit on today is an intermediate investor, somebody that's doing, you know, 10 to 15, 20 deals a year. How should that person work towards scaling up? And the last question that we plan to ask is for an, an advanced real estate investor doing hundreds of deals. What should that person be doing to go into the next level of commercial investing and hitting those multi-figure, seven, eight, nine-figure deals? That's what we're going to be covering on today's show with Greg Dickerson, and I look forward to seeing you right back here after this commercial break. Propelio TV is sponsored by Noble Mortgage and Investments, creativecashflow.com, and Life in There. All right, everybody, we're back here with Greg Dickerson. Greg, could you give us just a moment and just give us the real quick 45-second elevator pitch of your past? Yeah, so I started in the business in 1997 as a remodeling contractor slash handyman doing anything and everything. Uh, didn't go to high school. Uh, I mean, didn't go to college. I went in the Navy right out of high school. And uh, after I got out of the Navy, uh, bounced around a little bit, worked in uh, restaurants and construction, restaurants at night, construction during the day. In 1997, I moved to the Outer Banks of North Carolina to open a restaurant and ended up working in the restaurant business for a year. After that, I started, uh, started my construction company and started doing, like I said, remodeling, handyman stuff. Did 250,000 my first year. Uh, seven years later, we were the largest general contractor developer down there, doing about 30 million a year. And I started 12 other companies along the way. So I kind of learned it all from the ground up as a builder. And uh, my first flip was a lot flip that I did, made about $15,000. And uh, I was off to the races after that. So along the way, I've done everything from uh, single family homes, big beach houses. Um, I've done uh, multifamily, um, storage facilities, mobile home parks, office, retail, warehouse, you know, pretty much every <laughs> asset class. That sounds pretty awesome, man. You've gone across the board. Mobile home parks was something that really jumped out to me. I've always had an interest in mobile home parks. Some people forget that those have massive value as assets as well, but it's cool to hear that you've played around with them. Um, yeah, absolutely. The big ones. Yeah. You, you got to go big on those. So five seconds just to, to explain why you say that. Well, mobile home parks, you're, you're leasing dirt basically, mm -hmm. and they're, you know, two, $300 lot rent. So your spread on those are only about 50 to a hundred dollars a month. So you need a lot of, you need a lot of lots to make any kind of money. You can start out small, but you know, to make any kind of money and make it worthwhile, you need pretty big, uh, pretty big parts. Well, that's great to hear, but let's go ahead and dig into these three questions that I mentioned earlier, because I feel like there's quite a few people out there that could gain a lot of value from your experience and give some insight as to what these people should be doing. So question number one that I was going to be looking at is if I'm a newer real estate investor, I've really not done any deals, or maybe I've only done a couple of deals. I'm still in my nine to five. I have limited resources, but I'm out here and I'm willing to work as hard as I possibly can to get this business going. What kind of advice would you give to this person that is just just now getting started and wanting to make their career real estate investing? Yeah. So the first thing in any uh, business or any venture is education, right? So you want to educate yourself. You want to learn the business of real estate itself. If it's single family home, flipping, wholesaling, that type of thing, that's pretty much the easiest way to go. Or whether it's any other asset class you're going to get into, you got to learn the business. You got to learn the language of the business. You got to learn the numbers of the business and the metrics. 
uh, what things will sell for, rent for, what you can buy them for, what the spreads are, uh, what it takes to fix them up, to create the value, to add the value. So education is key, first and foremost. Uh, the second thing uh, that goes along with it is building your network. So learning from other people in the business, you know, this day and age, there's all kinds of groups on Facebook, there's meetups everywhere. Uh, so there's a wealth of knowledge and education out there that you can get for free. You can become an expert for free, uh, educating yourself and networking with other people and finding other people to do uh, business with and do deals with. Uh, the third thing is, and what I tell a lot of people, especially where I'm at, Charlottesville, Virginia, we've got the University of Virginia here, and I talk to a lot of young people embarking on their, their careers and a lot of investors starting out. Um, I tell them, go to work for somebody that is where you want to be. So whatever it is you want to do, whatever you see yourself doing in real estate, whatever asset class, whatever type of business model you're interested in, find the best in the business in your area doing what you're doing or what you want to do and go to work for them, even if you have to work for free. Almost every high volume, successful wholesaler flipper uh, that I know always has an opening for a sharp, educated, resourceful individual. Uh, most of them will hire attitude, not experience. So if you're hungry, if you're eager to learn, willing to do whatever it takes to be successful morally, legally, and ethically, uh, and get the job done, you can find somebody who's doing volume that'll take you under their wing. Uh, maybe it's an acquisition manager, maybe it's uh, you know, a lead manager, uh, you know, maybe it's you know, putting bandit signs up, whatever it is you can do for somebody starting out of the gate, there's a lot of things you can do uh, to get involved in a deal. Uh, on the network side, if you wanna be a wholesaler, uh, build your buyers list first. The first thing you need to do is go to those meetups, go to those Facebooks, find out who's buying, find out what it is they're buying so that you're not bringing people things that they don't want. You'll lose credibility if you're just slinging mud against the wall, looking for it to stick. A lot of people teach that method. Hey, just go find deals and just send them out there, send them out there. You know, that, that just really kills your credibility as an investor. Go find that investor, sit down with them, get to know them, get to know where they live, who they are, what they, what they think what they like, and then drill down into uh, the types of, of properties they're looking for, all the way down to what do they do to them, how much do they spend on them, what kind of paint are they using, what is their countertops, cabinets, you know, learn that business. And, uh, and when I say educate yourself, not only on the business and the cost of the business and the terms of the business and, and terminology of, of the real estate industry, but you know, I'm also talking about your market, right? So when you're starting out, you wanna pick a small market and you wanna focus and you wanna be the go-to guy in that market or girl, uh, you wanna be the expert in that market. And when I say know your market, you should be able to tell me at any given time uh, how many properties are on the market for sale, how long they've been on the market, how many are under contract, how long have, were they on the market before they went under contract, how many have sold, how long were they on the market before they sold, uh, what did they sell for, list price versus asking price, who's the top realtors in the area, who's the top wholesalers, who's the cash buyers, uh, you know, what street can I find a $200,000 house on? What street can I find the million dollar house on? You know, those types of things. So you, you've got to become an expert at what you're doing. There's, there's no, you know, tolerance for mistakes in this business. If you don't know your, don't know your business, don't know your numbers, don't know your metrics. So, so uh, that's, that's the first you know, a few things that I would tell somebody starting out. So a really big takeaway that I heard from that, and I'm going to boil it down to one word, and that sounded like immersion. Like you just get in there, learn everything you can possibly learn, find everybody that you can possibly find, find out everything about everybody that you can possibly find out. And through immersion, just kind of get yourself as a part of the business. Just get in there and just start learning everything you possibly can about it. On the marketing side, you're talking about going out and finding buyers, finding out exactly what that buyer is, what they're looking for, and then sourcing and finding ways to work with that buyer and or finding a person that's doing what you already want to do and then finding out a way that you can provide value to that person. 
Do you have any? Exactly. I always tell new people to start with the buyers. So you can start with the sellers as well. But, you know, you, hey, if you find the greatest deal in the world and you don't have any buyers, well, there's really nothing you can do with it. So you really should start with the buyers. Plus, the buyers will help educate you on the market as well. They'll, all those things that I said, they will help you drill down into that. And you'll, you'll learn how they think, what they're looking for, what percentages they're looking for. Then you can go after and hunt the deals. And there's, you know, all kinds of free ways to hunt deals between Craigslist and Facebook and uh, Zillow for sale by owners, uh, realtors, title companies, you know, uh, probate attorneys, um, you know, management companies. I mean, there's all kinds of ways that you can find motivated sellers for free, driving for dollars, door knocking, uh, you, you know, any number of ways. But you can find all the great deals in the world. If you don't have anybody to buy them, you, you know, there's no way for you to make any money. So given a real quick rewind to how you got started, was there any key things that happened while you were originally getting started? I know you went from the restaurant business into the remodeling business or the handyman business. I'm not quite directly sure on that direction there, but you went into some level of construction and then you scaled that up really quickly. How did you scale that up quickly for somebody that was just now getting started? Right. And again, I didn't go to college, right? So I had no business training, no college education, uh, went in the Navy. So I was working in a restaurant at night and there was a guy doing a addition on the restaurant during the day and he hired me to clean up after and he saw that I was a hard worker. Um, and so I just followed him around and started doing jobs. So that's how I kind of got into the construction business and learned how to do things. And I'm very, I'm just entrepreneurial, right? So when I was a young kid, I was cutting grass, raking leaves. I'm talking 10, 11 years old. I'd go knock on your door. If your grass was long, I'd knock on your door, Daniel, you want me to cut your grass? 20 bucks. Done. You don't have to worry about it. It's 100 degrees outside. You're going to give me 20 bucks, right? Right. So uh, in the winter, dead of winter, you got leaves all over your yard. I'd go out and I'd rake your leaves. I'd wash your car. I mean, literally, I would knock on your door. You want me to wash your car? Five bucks. Done. I'll wax it the whole nine yards, right? So I mean, that's just how I'm wired. So um, I was entrepreneurial at a young age. And I worked in the corporate world just a short time after I got out of the military in some restaurants. So I, I got some really good management training and leadership training in the restaurants. I was one of the youngest general managers that, uh, uh, that uh, Bennigan's ever had when I worked for them. And I went through their whole process from dishwasher to management. And uh, so I learned some really good business systems. So what I am is I'm a leader, delegator, motivator, right? So I'm very good at delegating. I'm, I'm not a control freak. I'm not going to come in and hire somebody and tell them how to do their job. So the way I scaled a $250,000 building business, it's just like a wholesaling or flipping business or anything else. Um, it's systems and it's people. So first it was me, my truck, my tools, doing everything myself. And then uh, my next hire was uh, somebody in the field to help me, a carpenter. And then I hired another carpenter to help us so that I could step out and become the superintendent. Then, then I hired my office manager part-time to handle all of the administrative and the bookkeeping. Back in those days, I was still doing it by hand. Didn't buy my first computer till like 2000, you know, for my business. <laughs> I, you know, I had a little hand journal ledger and I was writing stuff down. So, um, you know, I transitioned into that role. And then um, I think I put another crew in the field. Then I hired a superintendent to supervise those two crews. And I had my office manager, you know, book an appointment. So I had my uh, cell phone and my pager. And I would start on one end of the beach north, and I would just spend all day long driving to the south end of the beach um, doing handwritten estimates. So if you called for something, I showed up at your house that day, and I gave you a handwritten estimate. I want you to take that right there. I showed up that day. The key to this business, the key to any business, 90% of the game is showing up. If you're a wholesaler flipper, you got to answer the phone. you got to take that call. And I tell you, I can't tell you how many people put out bandit signs, spend thousands of dollars in marketing, and don't answer the phone. And they don't call people back and they don't follow up and follow through. Um, showing up is 90% of the game. Following up, following following through, following up, that's 
I mean, you know, I just can't tell you how valuable that is and how far that goes. So anyways, well, that's kind of the progression I went through and how I scaled. Let me and again, pause. I'm a leader, delegator, motivator. So I put professionals in place. I coach them to success. I mentor them, groom them, pour into them. I help other people become successful. That's how I built every business I've ever done. That's how I do every project I do now. I do it through others by coaching them to success. I love that. And I love that. And I love that. And I want to rewind back because you said something that is absolutely true. And it, it, it baffles me as to why, but I do know why. We've got people that will drop thousands of mailers, thousands of bandit signs. They'll go out there and put, the, put forth the effort, take the risk of doing the marketing, and they'll get it out there. And like you just said, they'll fail to answer the phone. Why is that? Why do they fail to answer the phone? I have my opinions. What are your opinions? And what would you recommend to those people that are taking the initial step of doing the marketing but are failing to follow up on the backside? Some thoughts on why you're feeling like they're failing on that and what they need to be doing to overcome that failure. You know, I think it's fear. I think people are just afraid to talk to people. Um, they or, or they, you know, they just don't know how to talk to people or don't know what to do. Uh, so I think that's the number one thing is fear. Other than somebody working a full time job and trying to do this part time and they put the Google voice thing out there. And let me tell you, people aren't stupid. You know, there's bandit signs everywhere. There's advertising everywhere. When somebody gets the Google voice message, they're going to hang up usually. Right. You know, because they want to talk to a live person. So if you can't answer the phone yourself, hire somebody that, that can, you know, outsource that, leverage that and hire a company to, you know, to answer that phone for you. But I think beyond that, it's fear. It's people are just afraid to talk to people. And there's really, you know, there's nothing to be afraid of. It's a conversation like you and I are having right now, you know, and what I would tell everybody is you've got to answer the phone. And if you're afraid, just do it. And the more you do it, the more comfortable you become, the better the conversations are. And people are afraid they don't know what to say. And they, you know, they have the scripts and they don't want to come across scripted. You know, it, it's very simple. You know, homeowner calls and says, hey, I'm calling. I saw your sign. You buy houses. Hey, absolutely. We certainly do. Um, you know, we buy in any condition. You know, we pay cash. We can close quickly. Tell me about your situation. You know, tell me about your house. How much do you own it? Where is it? What kind of condition it is in? And then you just listen. 90% of those calls is listening. 90% of the, of the transactions you're going to do in this business, you're a transaction engineer. You're a problem solver. You solve problems by listening. And you'll get way further by listening to that client or that homeowner that's calling in uh, than you will trying to read some script and pitch them, right? You just want to hear what their problem is, hear what their struggle is, because you just you never know what their motivation is or what, what it is that they need. Um, they might just need to go somewhere in a week. And, you know, you might be able to give them, you know, twelve, fifteen hundred, two thousand dollars $2,000 for their move. And then you can pick up a house or, or a property with, you know, a lot of equity in it. Um, so listening is the key. So I, I would tell people, if you're afraid to answer the phone, understand that 90% of what you're going to do, do is ask questions and listen and just keep quiet. Let people talk. That's how you build rapport. That's how you build relationship. This is a contact sport. It's a relationship business. You have to answer the phone. I get a lot of people asking me whenever we're doing these Propelio TV shows here 10, 12, 13 times a week, I'll send, somebody will send me a message and say, hey, can you give me a script for how I should talk on the phone? Can you give me a script for this type of lead? Can you give me script, 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 script? I always respond back and it's like, no, I'm not going to give you a script. I cannot stand scripts because you sound scripted on the phone. But with that being said, what would be five questions you think that a newer real estate investor should have answered on any phone call that they take in? Right. Beyond the cordial, what's your name, you know, things like that, just kind of get, you know, getting to know who you're talking to. Yeah, obviously, you got to know where the house is. You got to know how much they want, how much they owe, what kind of condition is in, why are they selling? Right. So those are the basic things you need to know. And, and not necessarily in that order. I'd say the most important thing is obviously get to know who you're talking to. Ask them, you know, where the house is. 
and why they're selling before you talk numbers. Where's the house? Why are you selling? What, what is your situation, right? So then you'll hear motivation real quick. Then once you hear why they're selling and what's going on, then you get into, uh, well, how much are you asking? How much do you owe on it? What kind of condition is the house? Uh, I lost him over here. There yeah. we go. Can you got me? Yep, yeah. there we go. Now you're back. Yeah. All right. Yeah, so I don't know what happened there, but um, but anyways, you know, in that order of, uh, you know, talking to them, getting to know them, um, you know, uh, you want to get into the next next question is going to be, you know, what what's going on? What's your situation? Why are you selling? Then once you understand that and you're building that rapport and that relationship, then you get into how much do they want for the house? How much do they owe on the house? Some people are a little bit uncomfortable with telling you that, but hey, you know, I'm in the business in order to solve your problem. I got to know what you owe on it. You know, we need to know what kind of equity there is. I'm an investor and in order for us to, to, to have a win-win transaction, we need to know what, what kind of margin we have in there and however you want to put that. Uh, but that's a, I've never had anybody not tell me what they owe. Uh, then you want to find out about the condition and any other you know, uh, residual information that's going to be helpful. What are the neighbors like? What's the neighborhood like? Hopefully you should know it, but if you're doing virtual wholesaling, you may not know. So they can enlighten you on what's going on in the neighborhood, what's going on in their area and, and things like that. But get to know them. Who are they? Why are they selling? What is their issue that you're looking to solve? Then get into the details of the deal. And I think that's extremely important because with these messages coming in of people talking about, hey, can I get scripts? Can I get that? Those were just some very simple things that Greg just dropped that we need to get out of every question. And those don't need to be scripted. All we have to do is ask a couple of open-ended questions, let the seller come through and they'll start answering all of that for you. And you don't need to sound like a robot. They'll give you information. And as that information comes in, ask questions about that information. And it'll just start expanding upon the conversation. It comes across unscripted and you're able to get the information out of the seller that you need. So if you're afraid of taking the phone call, maybe go out there and just start taking some practice phone calls. Maybe start cold calling some for sale by owners or start cold calling, you know, some, some properties that are for sale by owner anywhere. And when you start cold calling them, you'll start being able to get through those questions that you're struggling with. So some things that you can think of there, Greg just gave you some of the key things you need to find out. Practice doing that on some of those FISBOs. So when you are out there doing bandit signs or you are out there doing direct mail, you're not burning those leads that are coming in, practicing, practice somewhere else, then go out and drop your bandit signs, go out and drop your mailers and practice, your practice is already done. Yeah. Get to know them, build rapport, be genuinely interested in their situation, right? People know if you're canned, they know if you're scripted. Now there are some script questions, overcoming objections that can be useful that you want to kind of know, right? You don't want to like just spit them out. Um, and you know, there is some value, you know, to having, having scripts to handle objections. But when you're on that first call, when you're first going, you're building rapport, you're building a relationship and you want that individual to trust you. You want to be able to trust them. And you got to understand what we are doing, right? So we're transaction engineers, we're solving problems. That means we're serving people. So when you come from a place of sincerity, I'm sincerely trying to help you get rid of this house for the best number that we can possibly get for you. Uh, as an investor, I still have to make a profit. I'm in business, right? Uh, you're a seller, you need to sell. So there's gotta be a gap that we can come together and make a win-win. But when you approach it from sincerity of serving individuals, you're providing a service. You're in the service industry, right? Look at me, smile at me, make me feel good. Treat me like I'm a guest in your home. Just think about those things before you call somebody, right? You want to treat them like they're a guest in your home, whether you're on the phone or whether you're at that appointment, you know, think of it from a service mindset, a hospitality mindset, build that relationship, and then everything else will take care of itself. 
Well, awesome. I think we're about ready for a break. We've gone through question number one. If you're a newer investor, I'm going to recap on that. To some of the things that we should be looking at doing. Number one was education. Go out there and go to YouTube University. Go out there and find your mentor, Google, and just gather as much information as you can. Learn the business. Learn the language of the business. Not only that, learn your market. So those are some of the key things that Greg was talking about. Not only learn your market, learn price points, learn the number of properties available for sale, how long they took for sale, what was the difference between list price, sold price, how long did they actually take to close? Figuring out all of those different things. Number two, network, network, network. Find as many people as you can that are in the business and learn about them. Learn what they're doing. Learn all the different little assets of uh, aspects of it. And then number three, see if you can find somebody that's already in the business that has done what you want to do and then go to work for them. And I think that is key because mentoring, mentoring through working for somebody is incredible. Mentoring in any sort of way is incredible because if you found somebody that has already taken the path that you want to go down and they can give you the little tweaks that they've learned over time to get you down the path fast, There's nothing better and that will leapfrog you faster than a good quality mentor. So those are some of the three key things that Greg was mentioning for a newer real estate investor that's not really done anything in this business yet to really take hold, jump in and get going. I'm going to take this opportunity to go to a quick break and we're going to go into question number two. Question number two is for the intermediate investor that's doing, you know, 10, 15, 20 deals a year. How do we get those people up to the next level where they're really, truly experiencing what real estate can do for you, the wealth that it can bring and all those different opportunities that come with it right after this break. The Propelio Academy, an all-in-one education resource for training in wholesales, subject to wraps, short sales, flips, rentals, burr, property management, and more. Go to propelio.com academy to get your scholarship today. Propelio.com. What does Propelio offer? Lead generating websites. Access to true MLS comps. Off-market lead lists. And deal alerts. Get them all today at Propelio.com. All right, everybody, we're back here again, and we're going to go into question number two, and that is, Greg, and I think you're an expert at this because I've seen and I've heard some of your past, man, you have scaled up. 30 businesses, $30 million on one of them, done $200 million in real estate. You are an absolute powerhouse. You've done, gone through and just created all kinds of things. All of that to be said, I've got an intermediate investor, somebody that's doing a handful of deals a year, maybe five deals, 10 deals, 20 deals, whatever that number is, but they still haven't made it to where they want to go. They've seen the Lambos, they've seen the mansions. That's what they're aspiring towards, but they haven't made it there yet. What information do you have to take that person that is actually already out there doing it, but not seeing the scale that they want? They're not having the the key things in place that are allowing them to leapfrog and go forward, something that you've been able to do considerably from yourself. What is the advice you're going to give that person? So for the Lambo and the mansion and the jet, go buy an asset that'll pay for that first. Okay. <laughs> and then I, go get that. I like that's it. Number one. Now, so usually the person that's doing 10, 12, 15 deals a year, a lot of times they're doing pretty much everything themselves. Uh, they probably don't have a whole lot of systems in place, you know, to, to systemize the business so it can grow in scale. Um, and depending on what it is, whether you're wholesaling, uh, flipping, or even doing new construction spec, which was a big part of my career, um, you know, there's systems in each one of those businesses. Each one of those businesses is very different. Wholesaling is very different than flipping. Uh, and it takes a different set of, of um, systems in order to scale a flipping business and it does a wholesaling business, you know, wholesaling is just transactional. So you're just flipping paper. So that can be outsourced and automated a lot easier than flipping can, you know, flipping, you've got a lot of parts and pieces and people in place. 
And there's a couple of different ways to, to scale that business and to put systems in place there to automate that business and get it from the 10, 15 deal you know, level to the 50 to 100 deal level. Um, and there's a couple of ways to do it. So you can bring, you know, those resources in house in terms of uh, individuals to manage the process. Like when I was building my company, um, you know, when I first started out, everything was in house, all my labor was in house, all the equipment, vehicles, everything was owned. Then when I switched into bigger deals and doing uh, new construction and doing ground up and doing commercial, then I, all, you know, I switched and I subcontracted everything out. And I've done it that way ever since. And now I just hire general contractors to do all my projects for me. Can I so I don't, I don't even have any of that in-house at all right now. So um, so if you're wholesaling, it's going to be systems. It's going to be number one, first and foremost, it's going to be a, a lead management follow-up system, right? CRM, Propelio has tools. So that's the most critical thing. And I want to emphasize the follow-up. The most important thing in building and scaling is that follow-ups because in the wholesale business, it's transactional. So you gotta have a steady flow of leads. You gotta have a steady way of managing those leads, measuring the metrics, the KPIs, and then following up automated. So that automated follow-up is the key to a wholesale business. Everything else can be outsourced in terms of the uh, you know transactional management post deal. Um, and then everything can be systemized and outsourced on the pre-deal management side in terms of your lead manager, lead intake acquisitions. You can bring those things in-house or you can hire companies out there that that's what they do. You know, like a call porter or Ava, you know, there's, there's all kinds of different systems out there that will take those incoming calls, in essence, be your lead manager. Um, and uh, if you're gonna grow or scale any of the businesses, my first hire would be an office manager slash uh, executive assistant slash bookkeeper slash lead manager slash marketing director slash <laughs> slash slash right so that was one of the keys to my business it was I always had an office manager slash 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 who handled everything in my business administratively that freed me up to focus on everything else in my business so I wasn't you know behind the computer you know doing the books filling out paperwork doing the contracts things like that so the first uh, the first uh, system that you need to put in place is that office management system, whether that's outsourced or whether that's somebody who works for you full-time uh, wholesalers and flippers. You need a lot of leads. You got to have a lead management system in place. You got to have that follow-up management system in place. And then you got to have that transaction management system in place uh, to get that thing sold and closed. If it's a flipping business, then you've got to have the production system in place in terms to get that thing in the pipeline, get the renovations done, get it on the market and get it sold. Okay, so there's several questions that popped up for me throughout that conversation. I'm going to rewind back to the beginning, and you're talking about when you were scaling up your flipping side, your construction side, you had all of that in-house at first. You had all of your labor in-house, your tools in-house, all, all, all of the pieces of that puzzle in-house, and then you transitioned into subcontracting, and then you further transitioned into general contracting. What evolved down that path and why did you start doing it that way? Because I would imagine that initially having everybody in-house would have been an asset. What caused the change? You know, it's actually not. You think it is. And, you know, early on, that was the, even back then, that was the thinking. If you have it in-house, you control it. And as a builder, you know, it was like a marketing thing. Hey, all of our all of our labor's in-house. So therefore, our quality is going to be better. Our control is going to be better. You know, it's really not. So what happens is um, you end up having to pay taxes, insurance, you know, all of that. You know, so whatever you're paying that employee by the hour or whatever their salary is, you know, it's costing you 25% more than that uh, for all your insurance taxes and all that benefits, things like that. Then you're providing the tools and the equipment, you know, those types of things. <clears throat> and then, you know, you're stuck paying for all of their mistakes, right? So if they miscut the lumber, if they break something, um, 
you know, any, anything that goes wrong because of their, um, you know, be, that, that they did, and that's costing you as the owner, right? When you have it all in house. <clears throat> and then the worst thing of it all, or the most dangerous thing is you end up with a lot of people on staff that you do things just to keep them busy because you've got them, you know? Okay. That makes sense. So, um, you know, so that's where you really can start, you know, experiencing some slippage, not only in your material waste and theft and things like that, you know, tools, materials, <clears throat> those types of things will disappear. But, you know, the biggest thing is you're trying to keep people busy in between projects and, you know, you're just not using them to their fullest, most efficient uh, for the amount of time that you're paying them. All right. So if we've got those people and then you move from there into subcontracting, where did it go from subcontracting to general contracting and how did your margins change between all of that? And how did your lifestyle change between all of that? Right. So <clears throat> when we were the busiest and doing the most volume, I was making the most money and had the most time on my hands uh, in, over my entire career. And um, I wasn't real profitable as a business when I had hourly employees. Once I switched to subcontractors, I started making money. And the reason was, was because now I went from me having to guess how long it would take one of my guys to get something done. Even though I knew how long it should take, doesn't mean that's how long it's going to take. <laughs> and when people are on the clock, right, it all pays the same. So when I switched to subcontractors, now it was, you're getting 500 bucks for that, or you're getting $2 a square foot for this, or you're getting $8 a square foot for that, or you're getting 30 bucks a board for the drywall, right? Whatever it was, uh, it was a defined number. We had a contract. It wasn't going to change unless there was a change order that was approved. So then I could drill down on my costs much better. And, you know, in the rehab business, a lot of people say, oh, you don't know what your costs are. You're rehabbing. You, you can know exactly, if you know the business, like I said, if you educate yourself, you know exactly what everything in that business costs. If you're rehabbing houses and you're in an area where most of them are the same, I mean, a kitchen's a kitchen, paint's paint, roof's roof, you know, you should be able to know exactly what those things are going to cost you. And you can get quotes from your contractors uh, if you're using subs, but then you still have to have somebody to manage those subs. You still have to pay a project manager, you know, to manage subcontractors. So we switched to that model. Um, you know, I still had some labor and at 30 million, you know, I had 20 employees, you know, in our company, but they were all management. So two things happened. One, our time was no longer billable, right? So we were no longer earning based on time because now we were leveraging subcontractors and then their ability to grow and scale. And then I helped them become profitable. So a lot of my employees, I turned into subcontractors. <clears throat> I just gave them my tools, you know, and I helped them get their licenses and their insurances. And I turned them into subcontractors and I coached them on how to do their business and how to price things and how to be successful. And they started making more money than I could pay them. So they were loving it, right? And they were self-employed, they could do their own thing. So that's kind of how I leveraged, you know, and outsourced that so that we were able to go from that seven, I think, well, two and a half million was the most we did with 20 in-house hourly employees. Um, and I still had three supervisors over them. So when I turned all the trade employees into subcontractors, we went from two and a half to seven and a half million. Then wow. we went to 12 and a half, then we went to 17 and we went to 30. And I had the same amount of supervisors over all of the subcontractors that I had over my hourly employees. So that shift alone took us from two and a half million to 30 million just by outsourcing and using subcontractors. Then as I evolved in my career and the markets changed uh, to post 2009, um, I switched to the general contractor model because there were a lot of general contractors that were looking for work. And it was cheaper for me to hire a general contractor to do my projects for me than it was for me to have a superintendent and then have all that overhead and pay subcontractors and do all that. And, you know, a lot of people think in this business, if you're flipping, they think that by paying subcontractors directly, or by having the labor in-house that they're saving all this money. And at the end of the day, when you sit down and you do the books and you, you put the slippage 
uh, plus you know the um, overhead cost uh, and then the time, energy, and effort it takes to manage those pieces, and you calculate that opportunity cost, you actually save money by hiring a general contractor turnkey um, to do your projects for you. Okay. And um, you know, and if you get the right general contractor and you get the right systems in place and you work together and help them uh, be more efficient, do their business better, which is what we did. You know, that's when you really blossom. And then you can spend all your time on finding deals and doing the next deal and then doing bigger deals. So that's kind of how you progress and grow and scale, um, you know, in a business. And it's just, you know, I'm 51 now. I started out in 1997. I was in my 30s. It's 20 years of experience that I learned and watching the numbers and going through the motions. But I did what I did back then because all I knew was what I knew. And then as I grew, I started looking at, like I said earlier, find somebody who is where you want to be and learn from them. Um, some of my, you know, uh, top, uh, you know, people that I hung around were big developers. I'm talking, you know, 500 million, you know, 200 million, 500 million, $700 million guys doing like high rises and things like that. They weren't in-housing a thing, right? They're hiring general contractors. Okay. So uh, at every level, that system works. Okay. And so I started watching what those guys were doing and I started learning uh, how to do business the way they were doing. I, I'm loving all this feedback coming in. So one of the questions I'm going to have for you right now is we've got this intermediate person, like you said, likely doing everything themselves, not a lot of systems and automation around them. What should that intermediate person be transitioning into as far as their role in the company goes? What should you, what would you recommend that person be in that company? And how would you figure that out and place that person within their own company? So at that point, they're probably an employee of the company, right? They're probably doing everything. So you're actually, even though you own the business and you're, you're the owner, self-employed, whatever, you're an employee. You know, you're working for the business. So you got to switch that to working, you know, you're, the old adage is working on the business, right? You have to become a leader, delegator, motivator, okay? So you have to switch from working in the business to not only working on the business, but working on the people in your business. So the key to my success and the way I've scaled businesses so quickly uh, whether they were my own or other businesses, was I came alongside the individuals that I was working with, my trade partners, my suppliers, everybody in the business at every level, I came alongside them and I helped them become more successful at what they were doing. So I stepped out of the day to day and I became a leader. And again, like I said, the last thing I'm going to do is hire somebody, put them in place and then do their job for them. Um, you know, I'm going to lead them. I'm going to coach them. I'm going to train them how to do their job, their role, and then I'm going to let them do it. And I'm going to let them make mistakes and I'm going to let them learn, right? Because that's how, that's how I learn. That's how you learn. You learn by doing, you learn by making mistakes. So you got to, as a leader, you got to be willing to let go of the control. You got to be willing to delegate. A lot of people, just like people are afraid to answer the phone, people are afraid to delegate. We'll talk about that in a second. Um, and then you got to be willing to let them make a mistake. And, you know, as long as it's not going to be super expensive, you know, in, in the business, you know, people can make mistakes, right? And we've got enough margin in our deals since it's such a big, big ticket business that, you know, people can make some mistakes and you can recover. Uh, and hopefully they won't cost you too much. But, you know, that's really what you have to become. You have to become, you have to step out from a business owner, employee owner. You have to become an entrepreneur. You have to become a leader. You know, more than anything else, you have to become a leader in order to grow, grow and scale a business. You got to be able to recruit, uh, hire and train and lead people at every level of your business, in every level of your business. And just like your clients, right? Just like your homeowners, you know, people you're dealing with, you have to lead them, right? So leadership really is serving. So at the end of the day, what you got to realize is, you know, we all look at this pyramid, right? We've got the, you know, we got this pyramid of, of uh, a business. You got the CEO at the top, you got this, this, this levels all the way down to your line employees at the bottom. What I've always done is I've flipped that pyramid upside down. The leader 
is at the bottom. I have to give everybody in my organization through every single level, all the way out to whether they're employees or subcontractors or trade partners or the homeowner I'm buying from, I have to give them everything they need to be successful. In order for that person to sell me their house, I have to provide a solution. I have to serve them, right? I have to serve everybody in my organization for them to be successful, tools, training systems and support, but more importantly than that, clear direction and no uncertain terms exactly what's expected and when, measure that performance, hold them accountable, then move on. I love it, I love it, I love it. I've got a further question to pull from there, talking on this intermediate person. Let's say that this intermediate person has entered into this and now they are so busy working for themselves versus on the business. What kind of advice do you give to that person that is stuck in the business and feels like their only option to move to that next level is to automate and systematize, but they can't automate and systematize because they're so busy working in the business. I mean, it's kind of like, I think the saying goes, um, you don't have time because you fail to automate and you, you, you don't automate because you don't have time. So like you see, I see a lot of these people that are in that intermediate area where they've worked their little ass off all the way up to that point. And now they're stuck in a situation where they're working around the clock and they don't have time, but they need the time to automate and they're not finding it because they didn't automate. So what kind of advice would you say for that person? Are they gonna just have to hit the brakes and start over? Or what, what, what would you say to this person? No, no, not at all. So there's a couple of ways to do that. One is, you know, find a mentor, you know, find somebody to help you implement those systems, find a company that has all those tools, <clears throat> you know, like a Propelio and, uh, and, you know, bring them in to help you put those systems in place, right? Um, and I would just say, what you just got to do whatever it takes to make that happen. You know, you got to prioritize and you got to say, you know what, I'm just not going on another appointment until I get this done. And you got to make it important. And you can hire all that out, right? There's people out there that you can outsource everything to. And if there's something that's bogging you down, there's systems of, there's cold calling companies out there to do your cold calling for you. There's lead management companies to do your lead management for you. There's marketing companies to do your marketing for you. There's mail houses that'll do your mail house, mailing for you. I mean, all of it turnkey. You know, your CRM systems, there's companies out there that will implement that for you, input all your contacts, get it set up, train you, get you going. More importantly, you can hire somebody and put it on them. So, you know, that's that's the easiest way to do it would be, you know, just go ahead and hire somebody and make it their job to put those systems in place. You can partner with somebody. You can come alongside somebody else who's kind of feeling your pain. So, you know, you're, you know, 10, 12, 15, somebody else is 10, 12, 15. I know a lot of investors do this. Um, and you can meet them through networking, you know, come together and join forces. You know, maybe they're really good at something. You're really good at something. So you come together and, uh, and then put those systems in place there. Me, I've always been individual. I've never had partners in my businesses. Um, I've either owned them or, you know, when, when I did joint ventures with other people, I was always the owner uh, that controlled the business, kind of like Marcus Lemonis on the profit. You know, he comes in and he's in charge. That, that's me. Um, you know, so I've always hired people. Uh, to implement systems for me, or I brought in outside companies to do it for me. So that's probably the easiest way to do it would be to hire somebody, help you implement those things, um, partner with somebody, joint venture with somebody uh, to, to implement those things, or just start outsourcing whatever it is um, that you're good at. Do that. Everything else that takes up your time, that's that's eating up your bandwidth, outsource that, hire that, get rid of it. All right. One final question on this topic before we move on to the next to the next big question. And that's going to be, I already know this because I've talked to so many people that are in this area. 
What are we going to do when they come back and they say, well, I'm scared to hire somebody. What if I don't have the money to pay them? And the big, there's a big fear, especially amongst this crowd of hiring that person. What kind of advice are you going to give to overcoming that? Like, I don't understand human resources. I don't understand taxes. I don't understand payroll. I don't understand all this stuff. That's even more stuff that I'm going to have to do that I've never done before. And I don't know how to do. I don't want to hire somebody. I'm scared to hire somebody. What advice are we going to give to get that person over that fear? Well, you probably don't know how to paint. You know, you probably don't know how to wire a house. You probably don't know how to plumb a house, right? So what do you do? You hire a painter, electrician, plumber, you hire a roofer, right? Even if you do know how, you probably still hire them. Hire a bookkeeper, right? So you can, there are bookkeepers that you can do part-time, hundred bucks a month. They'll keep your books. If you want to have employees that you have to track payroll, um, the easiest way to do it is have independent contractors. So there's people, again, at every level of the business that support real estate investors that you can just start out with uh, part-time. So that's what I did. My first bookkeeper was part-time, you know, until she went full-time. Um, you know, every transition I made in my company, I had that I had that decision. It's a fear when you're starting out, man, I don't want to hire people. Actually, I wasn't afraid of hiring people because I was in the business and I'm, I know how to recruit, hire, train. You know, I, I went through leadership training, so I just, I knew how to do that. I wasn't afraid of that. But most people, like you said, aren't. And most people that I talk to and work with aren't. Uh, they've been in the corporate world or whatever, and they've never hired anybody. They didn't know how to interview. So there is a whole process and system to doing that. Um, you know, it's interesting. Um, you know, there really is no program. You know, I was talking to somebody the other day that was trying to hire somebody says, you know, I've never hired anybody. So I went through the process of how they were looking for an executive chef, um, for a resort. And I said, well, you know, it was a Christian camp and I'm like, you know, well, here's, you know, here's what you got to do to even, here's how you interview, you know, what to look for when they submit the resume, how you write the ad, what, you know, so anyways, there's a whole system of how to hire people and all that, but everything can be outsourced. You can start part-time, you can start slow, but I'm going to tell everybody right now, anybody who's listening, I'm going to say, you've got to have faith, right? You've got to take a risk. You've got to have faith. Um, you've got to believe in yourself and you've got to develop yourself. So first and foremost, develop yourself. There's books out there. One of the greatest books on management, hiring, training people, the one minute manager. Um, there's three books in that series. The one minute manager is the first, uh, the, uh, Putting the One Minute Manager uh, to Work is the second book. Leadership in the One Minute Manager is the third book. Every business I've ever had, uh, every employee I've ever had, I had go through all three of those books and I coached them and trained them on how to be managers and leaders, right? Because in a business, there's managers, the people that do and get things done. Then there's the leaders who inspire those to do and get things done, who serve the organization so that they can get things done. So the One Minute Manager, putting the One Minute Manager to Work, leadership in One Minute Manager, but I'm gonna tell every one of you out there, everybody who's ever done anything great has always been afraid to hire their first employee, to lease their first office space, to take the next step in business. Every step in business, your first step is always the worst step. It's always the most difficult, the scariest step. But once you take it, then the rest of the, it just gets easier every time. It's kind of like railroad tracks, right? If you stand on a set of railroad tracks and you look down and they kind of end, but if you walk to that point and you look, you can see even further. And you walk to that point, you can look, you can see even further. So um, have faith in yourself, have faith in what you're doing. Find like-minded people who are where you want to be and get somebody to mentor you, coach you and help you through it. You can do it because somebody else has done it. And I'm telling you, I'm not unique. I didn't even go to college. Anybody can do what I've done if they put the time into educating themselves and learning how to be a leader, learning how to manage people, learning how to hire people. And then you do it. You know, you learn by doing 
I love it. I'm actually going to go ahead and order those three books as soon as I get off of this interview because I've never heard of them before. And I love any chance I get to get feedback from somebody that's already done what I've done and somebody in your position that gives recommendation on books is something I'm definitely going to have to consume. If there's anything I could say that has given me some of the success that I've had is actually going out and reading books that people like you recommend. And that has given me massive value in my life, reading those books that have been recommended to me. So we're going to go ahead and take our next commercial break. And I'm going to come right back and we're going to jump into the last question that I plan on asking you. The last big question that is for these people that are out there doing massive volume, how are we going to transition them from doing large numbers of transactions to reducing the number of transactions to some simpler transactions, but on a bigger scale that pay out bigger payday? So we're going to move forward into that question next, right after this commercial break. The Propelio Academy, an all-in-one education resource for training in wholesales, subject to wraps, short sales, flips, rentals, burr, property management, and more. Go to propelio.com academy to get your scholarship today. Propelio.com. What does Propelio offer? Lead generating websites. Access to true MLS comps. Off-market lead lists. And deal alerts. Get them all today at Propelio.com. All right, thank you everybody for sticking around. I've got my daughter Tyla watching. Tyla, Zyla, my wife Miranda. I want to say thank you to all of y'all for watching. I love both of y'all. I love all of y'all. I love... Just absolutely love you, Tyler. Daddy will be home in a little bit. Sorry, Greg. I got to tell my daughter hi every time I get on here, man. I love my kids, man. I just can't. Well, I can't. We just saw your why. Right? <laughs> yeah, man. I, my kids, man. I get away from my kids for more than for more than a couple of minutes, and man, I'm like, ah, you know, I, I miss my family big time. So I'm up here trying to make this happen. Tyler, Zyla, love you. Miranda, love you. Uh, but let's move forward to this last question. This last question is, you know, I have gone out there. I have done hundreds of deals. I've made plenty of money in real estate, but I still haven't made it to where I really want to be yet. It, the life to do 100 deals a year is pretty hectic. I'm wanting to slow down. I like the money that's coming in and I'm really liking that, but I'm not liking the 100 deals a year. It's just taking me and driving me absolutely crazy. What was the next step that you're going to recommend to get that person out of that that craziness of doing 100 deals a year, trying to manage that process, manage everything that's going on in between there, to generating and building a lifestyle around their business that's going to allow them to move forward and maybe move into some commercial assets? Right. So, you know, we said it in the last segment, you got to become a leader. Okay. So what you have now, once you get all your systems in place and you go from 10 to 15 deals to 50 to 100 deals, where you're at, you should be able to put somebody in place to run that organization. You don't want to get rid of it, okay? okay? That's a great little cash cow. Set it aside. Find somebody that you put in place that you coach and you lead and you mentor and let them run that business for you so it provides you the income to go do what you want to do. So okay. you said you're not where you want to be yet. And for everybody listening, that's an important question. What do you want to be? You know, where is it that you want to be? That's an so that's, that's number one. The hardest thing for people to figure out what it is they want or, or to do is to figure out what it is they want. So I'll say it again. The hardest thing for most people to do is figure out what it is they really want. Because people say, hey, I want to do these big deals. I want to be a millionaire. I want to have all this. I'm like, well, do you really? Are you really willing to do whatever it takes morally, legally, and ethically to achieve that result? Are you willing to do and sacrifice whatever it takes to achieve that result? You've already done it. You've gotten to 100 deals a year. That, that is doing whatever it takes. That's sacrificing and I heard you, you know, getting a little emotional when you're talking about your kids and your family. 
And I know that's why you're doing what you're doing. So you can spend time with them. So you can be with them. So you can live life the way you want to live. it. So take that business, put it on autopilot, find somebody that can run that thing for you that you're just coaching them and you're just keeping an eye on the KPIs and the metrics, right? And then start going after the bigger deals. So there's a couple of ways to do that. You know, one is the natural progression. If you're, if you're a wholesale outfit, then you go to flipping, right? And you go to flipping higher end homes that are making $100,000, $200,000, okay? And then you go from that uh, to the commercial deals, or you can go right from wholesaling to commercial. First and foremost, it's about education. It's about understanding the model, right? Uh, so doing the residential thing, whether it's infill development or spec house, that's another way to do it. You can start doing spec houses, infill development. You can make two, three, 500,000 on those types of projects in the same amount of time that you're flipping 100 houses, right? Um, or a million dollars or whatever it is. So that's a next progression. So in order to get there, you gotta understand what that is and you gotta understand how to do it. So there's an education uh, factor there. So you gotta educate yourself to the market or the segment that you wanna go into. If you wanna get into commercial, well, in commercial, you got four asset classes, right? You've got office, retail, uh, industrial, and multifamily. And then beyond that, you've got hospitality and you've got land. So the four core classes are that office, you know, commercial, retail, and industrial. So you got to decide what, what asset class do you want to get into? What appeals to you most? And within those, then you have those self-storage units. You have the mobile home parks. You, know, you have apartment buildings. You know, you have different levels of apartment buildings. You have garden style. You have high rise, you know, all kinds of different things. So you got to kind of figure out where you're at, what's available in your market, what it is you want to do. Learn and educate yourself on those aspects of the business, just like you did on the other business. You got to know what are the cap rates? What are the rents? Uh, what are the, you know, what's the saturation, you know, pretty much everywhere you go, retail and office is just overbaked, right? There's vacancy everywhere. Um, multifamily cap rates are getting compressed. There's a lot of competition because a lot of wholesalers and flippers are going into the multifamily game and syndicating. So it's putting a lot of pressure on those properties and, and you know, the, the cap rates are getting really compressed, meaning it's getting more expensive to get in that game. So you got to kind of look where other people aren't going and try to find deals and opportunities. Um, Mobile home parks have a lot of pressure. A lot of people are getting into that game. That, you know, again, you need big deals there to make any kind of money uh, quickly, you know, unless you're flipping them. Sometimes you can make some, some wholesale fees flipping those. Uh, Self-storage can be a good, uh, a good market to be in. A little easier to run, but it is a retail business. So you got to understand the metrics of that business and what's all involved. You know, it's not as easy as it sounds. Little warehouses, how hard, hard can that be? I mean, that's a retail business. You know, you got to have people. Um, you've got to have employees, but there's management companies that will provide that for you. So there's ways to scale and grow that. Um, so really for you, for somebody who has your knowledge, your abilities and your infrastructure, automate or anybody automate that core business so that you can live and you have that income coming in. Maybe you need to ramp that up a little bit um, and kind of build that business a little bit instead of doing 100 deals. Find that individual that can run it and take it to 200 so that you can pay them and continue your income. Right. And again, that's just. KPIs, drilling down, where's your biggest dollars coming from and what areas, what marketing channels are producing the biggest results. That's easy to do with the right system, right? So then you just pour more fuel on that fire and just ramp that sucker up and put some systems in place so you can grow that and scale that to continue to pay you. So now you can go learn and focus on the bigger deals. And then ultimately this thing might fizzle out or you sell it off or you do whatever. Um, and then you start focusing on these bigger deals. And then when you get into where you're making 300,000, 500,000, a million dollars per deal, uh, in less time than you're taking to flip a hundred deals, you know, then you've got something and you've got freedom and you can hang on to some of those assets that, you know, one deal might replace your income that you're making, you know, flipping a hundred houses for the rest of your life. It only takes one deal when you're getting into the commercial multifamily, you know, to bring in that 20, 30, $50,000 a month for you. 
I know that was that was one of the biggest changes for me in my life is after I went from volume, volume, volume and really looking at nothing other than how many am I doing versus what is my net at the end of the day. And then I moved into a commercial asset and that commercial asset not only did more on an equity capture for me than my prior three years combined uh, hitting a multi seven figure uh, equity capture, but the cash flow from that deal was also phenomenal. So moving into a different asset class really changed my projections as a real estate investor. Now, looking back at what you're doing, one of the things that you've said that I really, really take and I, I like was we're talking about scaling up to the next asset class or scaling up to the next level of business. One of the key things that you said was, let's not get rid of that business. That business is performing. Let's try and find somebody to put in that place to replace yourself so that way you can start focusing on learning the new piece and then putting that new piece together. I really like that. So in your personal life, how did that progression go? You were doing the new construction. You were doing a lot of builds. And then I know that you've got into mobile home parks. You've got into other multifamily or uh, commercial asset classes. What made you choose the asset classes that you did and what kind of deals are you doing and where are they located? How is that part of your business look at today? So pretty much the Southeast region is where I focus, but it was all progression. So I had my building company that, you know, uh, I put the team in place and that thing was on autopilot, right? So that was just a matter of, you know, feeding deals and, you know, putting marketing systems in place that brought in the leads. And, you know, that thing was just automated. Uh, when I was flipping houses and doing rehabs, I didn't do as much wholesaling as I did flipping. And I did a ton of flipping, same thing. I had people that I put in place and uh, systems and that thing ran by itself. Plumbing company, I had somebody that ran that company. I just coached them. So literally what I do all day, every day is I drive around talking on the phone. That's what I do. I go look at the deals on the bigger ones and I, I make sure, I mean, I literally put feet on the ground so I can get a gut feeling of the area, the asset, you know, what's going on around it, you know, things like that. So um, it was primarily the Southeast just because that's where I'm from. That's where I'm at. There's plenty of opportunity in the Southeast. I don't really need to go you know, nationwide for what I do. And in real estate, you got two things. If you have a small market, you have to go wide in your asset class, uh, or you can focus on one asset class, then you got to go wide in your market, right? So what I chose to do is be diverse and small marketed because I don't want to just travel all over the country like you. I like to be home every night and be with my kids and do things and ball games and things like that. So I go where I can be back in a day. You know, I can go out and come back. And, and not have to worry about overnight stays and things like that. Sometimes I'll do a little bit of that, depending on where it's at. But I just know that Southeast region. I've lived in Florida. I've lived in North Carolina. I've lived in Virginia. And all of my contacts and deals have been all up and down that Northeast coast. Okay. Or, I mean, Southeast coast, Southeast region. Uh, on the mobile home parks, you know, I just kind of happened into those. Had a guy working for me that was looking to uh, make some uh, extra income, some passive income. I helped him buy a mobile home. And then he built another one on his property and he started building his little thing. So I started studying the business and I went out, bought a couple of parks, built them up, sold them off. So I don't have any now. I'm, I'm, I'm opportunistic. I'm, a, I'm an opportunistic investor, different than value add. I look for heavy opportunities to come in, build ground up, develop land, uh, turnaround assets, things like that. So I like heavy lift projects. Okay. That's where the biggest return is, biggest bang for your buck. They take a little bit longer, they're a little bit riskier, but you know, if you know what you're doing, you can hedge a lot of that. And okay. uh, uh, you know, so that's how I did it. So rolling through that, we're talking about building it up. Are you talking about horizontal development and then to going vertical at the same time? Or are you talking about finding something that's already been horizontally developed and then going vertical with it yourself? Are you doing all of it? Mobile home parks, are you coming in? Are you putting in all the infrastructure to build a park? Are these the types of things you're talking about? Are these the types of things you're doing? So um, I've developed a couple of parks. And, you know, again, with one, the guy that worked for me, um, mm -hmm. those are very difficult now in a lot of areas because they don't want them. So now you got to go in and you got to find a park that's, that's distressed and then has uh, extra space to add on. 
So maybe the owners had it for a while and, you know, they're fine with it. And it's got another 30 lots that can be developed, developed out or that can just, they just need units brought in. So there's a couple of ways to do that. You can go in there and develop it out and then advertise and people move their trailers in, or you go buy the trailers and move them in for them and then do like an owner finance or a rental or something like that. So that's what I've done on mobile home parks. Sometimes it's an infrastructure play. Sometimes it's the, um, you know, the, the water lines, utility lines, well and septic need upgrading and the owner doesn't have the capital to do it. So you can come in, buy that park at a discount and go spend 100 to 300 grand doing that, depending on the size of the park. And then you've got something that might be worth another 500,000 to a million on the back end. Awesome. So I've done a couple of those, um, you know, with those. Storage is gonna be more of a ground up play. Um, there's too much pressure on existing assets. So ground up is a good play on storage. They're easy to build. There's usually not a lot of resistance and zoning and getting those approved. Residential, I like to do ground up. Um, mixed use um, developments, uh, a lot of times it's an existing building in an urban center that uh, there's a lot of revitalization going on. Um, you know, a lot of the cities now, there's a lot of urban revitalization going on where you can go in and buy an old warehouse or an old whatever and then turn it into a mixed use product. So, okay. um, you know, I'll do those as well. So it's, uh, it just depends on where it's at, what it is. And, and uh, you know, um, you know, it's gotta be a deal at the end of the day. So where are you finding this deal flow at at this level? So like if I'm a real estate investor and I've been heavily, heavily uh, invested on the single family side, I've built my network out into there. When we're moving into these commercial sides, where are you getting your deal from? Bro, I hear that you're saying you're opportunistic. Is there anything that you've created in regards to a pipeline that are allowing these opportunities to be presented to you? relationships and a track record. So people know me in my region, they know what I do and mm -hmm. they see projects. Um, so, you know, I've got networks with architects, realtors, um, commercial brokers. So I've constantly got deals coming to me. And then I, you know, I drive for dollars in the commercial world. Okay. Believe it or not, driving for dollars is more effective than anything else. You just drive around and you notice, man, that building looks like it could be something good mm -hmm. or, Hey, here's a vacant lot, you know, or something like that. So when it's ground up, there's a lot less competition. Uh, in that market because, you know, it's such a high barrier to entry in terms of the capital that's required, you know, uh, getting things approved, you know, things like that, the time frame. So those, those are uh, less competition. So I tend to do a lot of ground up um, for that reason. And, and the urban revitalization, the mixed use developments, um, you know, the easiest way to find those people send them to me. And then when I'm in areas, I just kind of drive around and see what's going on. And uh, yeah, that's just what I do. I'm on the road all day, every day, just kind of looking at different things, looking at markets. I mean, it's what I, it's what I love to do. It's kind of, it's my golf, right? So um, I don't really spend a lot of time doing anything else, but looking at deals and, and looking for deals. So that's, you know, networking more than anything else. Awesome. So we're about to move into another commercial break and we're going to come back and catch uh, questions from everybody that's been on here from Facebook, from YouTube, from Periscope, from Instagram. We've got questions coming in from all these people that want to talk to you. Uh, one awesome. last thing before we get out of that and move into this next commercial break. You've dropped a lot of little nuggets here that people are attaching onto and they could f get feedback from. If somebody wanted to work with you, if somebody wanted to do business with you, how could somebody do that? Yeah, so my website, gregdickerson.com, all my information's on there. And they can email me, greg at gregdickerson.com. My number's 434-326-3903. I answer the phone. <laughs> and, uh, you know, if they want to reach out to me later today, that's fine. I've got a lot of bandwidth in my life. And, uh, you know, I have no backlog in my life. I'm very efficient. I outsource and I delegate. So I own my time. And, uh, uh, but yeah, gregdickerson.com, all my info is on there. And, and uh, yeah, reach out anytime. 
All right, well, much love for you coming on here. I'm going to go ahead and move into one more commercial break, and we're going to come back and answer all of the questions that have came in from YouTube, Facebook, Periscope, Instagram. If you're not following us on all those pages, please make sure you go out there and do that. Also, remember that this show is sponsored by Propelio.com. If you have not checked out Propelio.com, please go out there. Propelio.com is the reason that all of this is happening. Go out there, check out the CRM, check out the websites, the lead list, the, uh, the MLS, the MLS comps. Propelio provides many different access, uh, many different uh, pieces of this business to you. Make sure to go check them out. They are who puts this on. We're going to go to a commercial break. We'll come right back and answer all of your questions. The Propelio Academy, an all-in-one education resource for training in wholesales, subject to wraps, short sales, flips, rentals, burr, property management, and more. Go to propelio.com academy to get your scholarship today. Propelio.com. What does Propelio offer? Lead generating websites. Access to true MLS comps. Off-market lead lists. And deal alerts. Get them all today at Propelio.com. All right, we're back here with Greg, and uh, we've gone through many different things. If you haven't watched this or you're just now tuning in, make sure to go back and rewatch this. In the very beginning, we hit three primary questions. Question number one, if I'm a new investor, really haven't been in the business, haven't done anything in this, what are some of the key things that I need to be doing? Question number two was, if I'm an intermediate investor, still kind of feeling like I'm working for myself, I don't have anybody or teams around me, what do I need to do to get to that next level? And the last question that we just asked was, I'm a successful real estate investor. I've done really well, but I'm looking to do even better. What should I be looking at there? Those are the three primary questions that we asked during the show. And we're going to go ahead and kick this show back over to the viewers and allow the viewers to ask their questions to Greg because he is uh, very experienced in this business, has done very well for himself. So I'm going to open this up and I'm going to start taking questions in from the crowd. So if you haven't got your questions in yet, make sure you get them in there real fast so that we can get them answered. And we're going to go ahead and start up with question number one. Mr. Harper. Oh shit. <laughs> we may we may hit, we may hit a pickup. I got a first ever periscope question from Martina as Steve. If wholesaling virtually, how do you meet with a seller without giving a 50% cut to another investor? Right. So if you're wholesaling virtually, you're not going to meet with a seller. I mean, that's the that's the nature of virtual wholesaling. So what you can do, one of the other ways you can do that is you can find a realtor in that market and you can pay them a fee to go meet with the seller. And if, if it's something you can buy, great. If not, they get a listing out of it. So that's a good way to work it. You can also have other wholesalers in the area that you just you know work a flat fee out. It doesn't necessarily have to be a 50% fee. Um, if you're going to sell it to your buyer, um, then you know I'm sure there's a lot of wholesalers that go look at something for $500,000, you know, whatever, um, that way. And uh, you know one of the third things would be a uh, investor buyer. So if you're virtual wholesaling, again, the first thing you need to do is identify the buyers in the market. If it's flippers or buy and hold guys, they're going to be your uh, eyes on the ground, boots on the ground. They're going to meet with the seller for you. So if you've got a great deal tied up with the seller, you get that contract tied up and you have your investor buyer go meet with them. So the key is you want to tie it up before somebody goes to meet with them. So if you're virtual wholesaling, the key is to get it tied up on the phone, right? And the way you do that is you say, hey, you know, I I'll pay you 100000 for that house. As long as everything says what you say it says and what the pictures are showing, you get that seller to send you pictures. And if they won't do it, then you have your investor buyer go out and look at the house. Or you have your realtor go out and look at the house, send you pictures. But try to get it tied up on the phone. That's what virtual wholesaling is all about. 
um, before you go see it and, and get that thing under contract and use your investors to be your boots on the ground in the markets. Great advice, great advice. So I've got another question in coming in from Brandon Connell that I just lost my back. There we go. Brandon Connell, what do you think about the parks that only rent trailers rather than seller finance them along with the lot rent? So on mobile homes, we can rent we can rent the homes, we can rent the land, we can owner finance the home, rent the land. What what are your thoughts on those different business models and what do you prefer? What would you recommend? Why's and why not? So I like the owner finance model uh, versus rent because, you know, the renters will tear those things up and destroy them and, and they can be high maintenance, um, you know, in a, in a mobile home park environment. The first and foremost is you want to rent the dirt. If, you know, you don't really want to own the park, uh, own, own the homes in the park if you can get away with it. But if you have to buy one that's got some park owned homes, then I would say just owner finance those out to people, their personal property, their title, uh, like a car. So they're easy to repossess if somebody doesn't make their payments. Uh, and then they have to take care of it. So if they tear it up, they're responsible for it. Um, and there's a whole business model around flipping mobile homes where you go buy a used mobile home for 500 to 1000 to $5,000. Then you owner finance it back out to somebody and you get 500 to 1000 to $5,000 down uh, to cover the purchase that you made as well as maybe a little extra. Let's say you bought it for 1000 You owner finance it for, for uh, you know $10,000. You get 5000 down. You, you give them a note for 5000 so there's a whole business model around buying and selling owner finance to use mobile homes just like there are houses. So that'd be my recommendation. I, I like the owner finance model. Awesome. I personally like the owner finance model as well. And if you're not familiar with the owner finance model on mobile homes, it's called Lonnie Deals. I mean, that's kind of the guy that really pioneered that initial info sales piece of it, Mr. Lonnie Scruggs. So if you're not what familiar- What a name for yeah. mobile homes, right? Lonnie right. Scruggs. Lonnie Scruggs. So a lot of people refer to that type of transaction as a Lonnie deal. So if you're intrigued by what Mr. Greg just said, go out there and check out the Lonnie deals. Uh, there's plenty of books on there called Deals on Wheels, blah, blah, blah. It's a it's an interesting business model. It's kind of how I retired myself. So I like that business model a lot. I've got another question coming in here from Brady Durr. Uh, Greg, would you say your strength is data analysis? If so, does that give you an edge? My strength is that I'm a leader. I'm a leader, delegator, motivator, first and foremost. Then beyond that, yes. I, I uh, You don't know your business unless you know the numbers. And in order to intimately know your business, you need to know the numbers. So yes, I, am, I take the data. Now, I'm not the one that goes and gets it. I get it provided to me by others. And then I analyze that data and compartmentalize that data so that I can use it to, to make the decisions for me. So it takes the emotion out of the equation it takes you know your gut out of the equation, which you still got to pay attention to your gut and cert certain instincts of a market, things like that. So the numbers can be great, but if it's a market that's just like, eh, you know, you got to go by your gut. But beyond that, when you're running a business, the business is all about the numbers. The numbers do not lie, and uh, you can make um, unbiased, unemotional decisions when you go by the numbers. Awesome, I love that feedback. Got another one here from Jermaine Wilson. I heard Greg speak about knowing your market. How do you guys find out what type of market you're in, especially in a state like New Jersey where things are super dense? So, you know, you got to go neighborhood by neighborhood, subdivision by subdivision, and then anal break it down to that at the, at the very core and analyze by subdivision by, you know, by subdivision by area by area. Because in an area that's very dense, I mean, you could turn one block and it's very different than it was a block, two blocks over. So you really literally have to drill it down. You got to find the neighborhoods find the zip code, you got to drive it, you got to know it, you got to talk to people that are active in that area. And you got to know street by street, block by block, exactly what's going on. And the data will tell you that, you know, you can look everything up in the MLS with your system for the MLS comps, you can you can look it up on Zillow, there's all kinds of ways to get to know it. But street by street, block by block, 
you know, go during the morning, during, during the afternoon, during the evening, see who's there, see what's going on. You know, you can check crime reports, you can check, you know, talk to realtors. Uh, and then, you know, the numbers will tell you what kind of market you're in, regardless of what you think or feel. The comps are the comps. If stuff's selling in days, you got a hot market. One street over could be very different. Awesome. Love it. Got a question coming here from Delonda Lewis going back to an earlier statement that you made. And it says, why does everyone promote saying I can pay cash and close quickly when you don't have a buyer lined up? Just seems like a setup to not meet your word if you can't find a buyer or pay yourself. It's referring to wholesalers that may not have the capital to close. So I know wholesalers will do that as a marketing, you know, ploy or marketing gimmick. And what I would tell people to do is, you know, that's great to attract the leads. But when you're having the conversation with the seller, again, you're building rapport, you're building a relationship, be honest and say, hey, I find deals for investors. That's what I do. So you and I are going to enter into a contract for a price that I know my cash buyers can pay. So my job, just like a realtor. So what what wholesalers, a lot of them don't understand. You're basically a realtor without a license. You're putting buyers and sellers together, not on behalf of one or the other, on your own behalf because you're contracting to purchase the, hot, the, the the property. So that's the difference between a realtor and a wholesaler. But at the end of the day, you're putting buyers and sellers together. So just be honest, you know, the people don't care. They just want the house sold. They just have a problem. So don't tell them I'm gonna buy your house if you don't have the cash, you know, tell them exactly what you do. And say, look, I, I have a handful of investors that I work with that pay cash. They either rehab and flip or they rent it out and they hold it. And my job is to go find those deals just like a realtor's job is to get a house sold for a customer or or a realtor that has buyers, they go out and they find buyers, right? And realtors will go direct to seller on behalf of a client. So it's really no different. Love it, love it. Got another one coming in here from Jermaine Wilson. This is a statement. This might be one of my favorite interviews you have ever done. So kudos to you, Greg. We've got Jermaine here. He's loving the interview here. Awesome, thank you, Jermaine. I, I appreciate that. I uh, got another one, Martinez Steve. I need to hire an acquisition manager for my virtual wholesaling business. How do I do it virtually? Okay, so you're going to look for somebody in your market that you're wholesaling in. So if you're in Columbus, Ohio, and you want to do Phoenix, Arizona, then go to Phoenix, Arizona, and you've got three ways to do it. You can find investor buyers. Again, always look for your buyers first, okay? So find your cash buyers in that market, and that's easy to do. You can go on Facebook and join groups and look for who the cash buyers are in those markets. You can go on Craigslist. You can call uh, title companies. And then there are softwares that you can purchase that show you cash buyers in different markets, multiple cash buyers. So find your buyers first. They can be uh, your acquisition person. Because again, you're gonna, as a virtual wholesaler, you're tying it up on the phone. You're not relying on an appointment. That's the difference. That's why it's virtual, okay? But if you do have to have an appointment, you got your investor buyer. Second thing is gonna be a realtor, okay? Uh, if you don't wanna deal with another wholesaler. Uh, second thing is gonna be a realtor. Find a realtor in the market because if you can't buy it, well, then they can get a listing and they can pay you a marketing fee. Big gold nugget for your audience. Just because you can't buy it doesn't mean you can't make money on it, okay? If you can't buy a property, have a realtor that you have a relationship with that will pay you a marketing fee, not a referral, but a marketing fee for that listing, you know, and when they get a deal. Most realtors pay 25% of their commission for a referral from another realtor. So if you're asking a thousand bucks for a marketing fee when that deal closes, and realtors will line up all day long to take your deals. So monetize the deals that you can't do with a realtor. Uh, third way is going to be wholesalers. So in markets you want to be virtually wholesaling in, you know, find other wholesalers and, and you know, do joint ventures with them or pay them a fee uh, to go be your acquisitions manager and just have an agreed upon fee for each deal. Again, if you've got the buyer and you've got the contract, there's nothing to JV, you just pay them a fee. Most wholesalers will go look at a house for a thousand bucks, 500 bucks. 
Much, much appreciated for that. I've got a, another one coming in here from Jermaine Wilson, and I, I honestly don't know the, the the answer to this. What is ten, twelve, fifteen? I don't, I don't, I don't get the reference. It looks like so, a date. He's like, what's ten, like ten, twelve, fifteen? I don't, I don't understand the reference to it. Ten, twelve, fifteen. I, you know, I don't know. You know, maybe you were talking about going from 10, 12, 15 houses a year to. Oh, okay. Maybe that's what he's referring to is we're talking about, you know, talking, I think. Okay. So that's probably what he's talking about is the number of deals we're doing. Like if I'm an intermediate investor doing 10, 12, 15 deals a year, this is the advice we'd give. Yeah. So maybe that's what he's referring to. So uh, I think we've moved through most of the questions that have came through through most of our channels. If we have any final questions coming in, this is going to be your last opportunity to ask. I'm going to give it a few more seconds for those to come in. I'm going to give you a chance, Greg, to kind of give me a uh, give me some background on you, what you're doing, how you could help people. Yeah, absolutely. So, um, you know, if anybody needs help in their business and, and they're looking for somebody to, you know, help them mentor, you know, I do get involved in companies that can scale. Um, I still, so I still do some equity uh, investments in companies that have the ability to scale. Um, I do, you know, joint ventures on larger projects. Um, so I'm, you know, I'm not really interested in getting involved in a wholesaling operation or anything like that uh, from an equity standpoint or a flipping operation. But, um, you know, so really what I'm focused on are bigger commercial deals, um, primarily in my markets of, of the Southeast. But, you know, if there's people that are looking to get into development, whether it's, uh, you know, uh, single family homes doing spec houses or doing uh, small infill developments or even ramping up to where they're uh, a regional builder in their area uh, doing subdivision type developments. I've done, you know, some subdivision deals where I've taken a chunk of land and turning it, turning it into a mixed use subdivision. Um, so you can do those types of things. We didn't even really talk about land. There's a whole nother business model of, you know, flipping land, developing land, you know, doing things like that. So I'm, I'm happy to, uh, to help out and, you know, uh, any way I can with those types of things. And, you know, I do some coaching and consulting. So if, if people are serious and they want to ramp a business up and, uh, you know, uh, they're usually somebody who's a little bit more advanced, um, you know, to be able to work with me doing what I'm doing. Um, and, uh, you know, leadership is the most important thing. I, you know, if I can say anything over and over today about how to scale your business, how to grow your business, you got to develop yourself as a leader, which means first and foremost, you're a servant. You're serving that organization, everybody in it. You're serving your clients and your customers, no matter what business you're in. If you want to grow and scale a business, you got to develop yourself as a leader. One Minute Manager System is the best management leadership system out there. It's how I scaled every business using that system. Um, and you got to be willing and, and have the ability to, to delegate. And again, you know, we talked about that earlier where, you know, a lot of people are afraid to delegate. People are afraid to tell somebody what to do or ask somebody what to do. You know, if you're a leader and you're inspiring people, they want to do more. They want to help. So don't be afraid to delegate tasks. And say, you know, hey, Daniel, you know, I need you to, you know, I need you to make those 20 calls today. And then when you're done with that, I need you to take these deals to here and I need you to go there, check on this house, go in there. Let me know when you're done. Let's catch up later. You know, that's not being bossy. That's not being rude. It's like, Daniel, you and I work together. This is your role. Hey, man, I need you to go by, you know, Main Street, Elm Street and check on that. And then, by the way, I've got these six contracts. we got to go do this. Let me know. And then I'm going to go over here. So it's just delegating, right? It's just whatever you don't have time to do, find somebody to, to fill those pieces in and, the other thing in my organizations is I hired people better and smarter than me doing what they do. I've never built a house with my hands. When I built my first million dollar home, I've never built a house. I hired people who did. I've never built a hotel. I've never built an office building. I hired general contractors who do. So I find professionals who are good at what they're doing and I coach them to success. So that, that's how you scale and grow a business. 
Well, I've absolutely loved this interview. I've gotten a lot of nuggets out of it personally myself. I want to thank you for coming on, spending the time this afternoon to not only talk to me, but talk to everybody that's been out here watching and is going to watch in the future. Uh, once again, how does somebody get in touch with you? GregDickerson.com? GregDickerson.com, and uh, all my contact info is on there. Greg at GregDickerson.com. 434-326-3903 uh, is my number. All right, and then on our side, this entire production has been made to you available by Propelio.com. If you have not checked out Propelio.com, they are the backing to Propelio TV. They offer MLS comps, websites for your real estate investing business, access to lead management, as well as nationwide lead lists coming out here in about 45, 60, somewhere 60 to 90 day range. So with all those things coming up, you're doing yourself a service by going to Propelio.com, spending a few minutes to see what they have to offer. If you've never heard of the Propelio Academy, the Propelio Academy is also offered through Propelio.com. Uh, check out the link at the top right-hand corner of the page. It says Academy. From there, we give you actionable content on how to enter and, and educate yourself in this business. Right now, we have about 60 videos out there right now and within the next two weeks we're looking to drop about another 250 more videos these are all actionable videos that'll teach you the language of this business and how to enter and stay in this business ethically morally and safely so go out there check all that out thank you very much for tuning in greg dickerson thank you for showing up here and for everybody that's out there have a great day yep thanks for having me i enjoyed it thank you thank you Paleo TV is sponsored by Noble Mortgage and Investments, CreativeCashflow.com, and Life in Air. Hey everybody, I'm Ryan with Propelio. If you like what you saw, please subscribe. Turn on those notifications and stick around for more. We have tons of content like this all over our channel. So if you want to learn more about real estate investing, stick around, watch Propelio TV, and we'll see you later.